Well, when you consider the glories of heaven, and you, you picture the angels in heaven that are gathered around the throne praising God, when you compare that to the darkness of this earth, there are few things that the angels would have to rejoice over here. But Jesus said that there is joy in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. <laughs> in other words, that is something that causes a celebration in heaven. That is just amazing. That's beautiful. So, so today there is a celebration in heaven uh, because one of our youth here has given their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. You know, the church of Jesus Christ continues to march on. And that is, a, that is evidence that God is alive and well today. If you ever question that, if you ever wonder about that, that's evidence. That's proof that God is still stirring the hearts of men and women today, of young people today. And that should give us real hope and joy in our lives. I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a text this morning. Now, the end of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is, is writing about this wonderful offer of reconciliation that Jesus Christ has given to mankind. He is calling us away from our, our sinful, rebellious self. He is calling us to faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the beautiful verse, verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And one of those new things that we receive is a job, okay? As believers, we receive a new job. And that job flows out of our new nature that we have in Jesus Christ. But it is a job then of reconciliation. We are calling men and women to come back to Jesus Christ. You see, because of sin, that beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, was severed. And now we... When we come to Jesus Christ, we then have the ministry of reconciliation. We are called to be ministers. Okay, so you might not be ordained as such, but yet God has called you as a believer to be a minister of reconciliation, calling men and women, come back to God. Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Well, chapter 6 comes next. You see, flowing out of that offer of reconciliation that God has extended to us through Jesus Christ, flowing out of that is a call to purity of life, is a call to separation. I, I just am always fascinated at how Scripture flows, okay? Scripture goes together, what comes next is not just coincidence, but it is a part of what was before. It continues on, and it's beautiful. And so, this morning we are starting at verse 11 of chapter 6, 
and going through verse 1 of chapter 7, I read, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, at the very beginning here of this message, let me just say, this is a huge subject. Many books and and volumes of books have been written about this matter of separation. I will only say a few words. I will certainly not cover much at all. Only scratching the surface. You know, as it is in any sermon, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to take what is said and even what is not said and to connect the dots, as it were, with the listener. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is absolutely essential to each of us and and, and to what we then gather and, and what we take from here. And so, this morning we are trusting the Holy Spirit Uh, to work among us. I will be preaching more on the line of principle and not as much practice this morning. That doesn't mean practice isn't necessary. I simply trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will touch me and will speak to me and that He will lay His finger, as it were, on various issues in our lives that need to be brought more into line with what the scripture is saying. So let's be open to that. Someone has said, as it relates to this passage, that there is no principle of Christianity that is more important than that which is here stated by the apostle, and none in which Christians are more in danger of erring, or in which they have more difficulty in determining the exact rule which they are to follow. (laughs) Well, this sounds impossible, doesn't it? And yet, once again, we trust the Holy Spirit to direct us. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning and that you would just simply reveal to us the issues in our lives that we need to to surrender more fully to you. 
areas that we need to give up so that we can experience a, a greater intimacy with the Heavenly Father. And we pray your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a day where there seems to be an increasing casualness in many areas of life. It seems sometimes like the phrase, come just as you are, has taken much of the church by storm. And truly, this is not just a simple invitation to come to our church, to come worship with us, nor is it only referring to how we dress when we come to church. But in many cases, dear people, this come just as you are reflects an attitude or a lifestyle that has developed due to an improper understanding or an improper perspective of who God is and what he is requiring of his people. It's a mindset that banks on the love and mercy of God. It's the attitude that God just accepts me no matter what. God loves me so much. It's an attitude that expresses little responsibility on our part. And yet, dear people, the Bible is clear time and time again that God has a requirement and God's people have a responsibility. And I notice here the very last words uh, of our text this morning give perhaps the chief motivating factor for this. What is the chief motivating factor for why you live like you live? What is the chief motivating factor for why you dress like you dress, for why you come to this church, for why you say no to many things in the world? The last few words of our text says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or, all of this should be done out of reverence for God. Do you do what you do primarily out of reverence for God? Because of who God is. Because of how great He is. Because He is the Lord Almighty. How big is your God? Something we should consider as we move into this passage. Now, I would just simply like to, to break down uh, the text in this way this morning. We'll first note some relationships. Secondly, uh, reality. Thirdly, the requirement. Fourthly, uh, the result. And fifthly, the responsibility. Uh, let's begin here by looking at the relationship part that the Apostle Paul brings out. But as we move into that, I want to first note the tenderness that Paul had in addressing this big issue in the church. Now, if you've studied uh, the letters to the Corinthians much, you realize that there was some very alarming things about the Corinthian church. There was some very ugly things going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul was aware of this. He knew the dirt. He saw it. He worked with it. And yet Paul had such a deep love for those people. He cared about them. 
he had a concern for them. He, he was confident that God would, would make them into something beautiful. And so here the Apostle Paul needs to address a big issue in the church. And he could have went about it in various ways, but as a leader, I'm challenged many times over when I, when I read about his tactics, as they were, in addressing issues in the church. And here we see his, his tenderness. He, he says, in a sense, dear people, we have not held back anything from you. We have not held back our love, our care for you. We have given you everything. We have opened wide our heart to you. And yet, you have not opened yours to us. You are holding back. And so he's saying, dear people, as a fair exchange, why don't you open your heart to us? Why don't you listen to us? We've done that for you. Why don't you do it for us? And then he moves in. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I want us to ponder this statement as it relates to relationships. And that is, nature determines association. Nature determines association. So, because a pig has a pig's nature, he likes to spend time in the mud with other pigs. Uh, because a sheep has a sheep's nature, he likes to spend time in the pasture munching on grass with the other sheep. And I say because the Christian has a divine nature, the Christian should have a desire to please God in all areas of life, to please God in everything that he does. Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because God deserves it. He is our master. We have a divine nature because we have been saved from sin. We have been granted forgiveness and we now have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and we have a new life and therefore everything is new, right? Our nature is new. Therefore, we ought to be pursuing the things of God. It's a part of our divine nature. What are you thirsting after? What are you hungering after today? What is your nature revealing to those around you? Do not be unequally yoked together. This, this phrase here speaks of joining two things that should not be joined. Now it's based, I understand, on Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10. It goes way back to Moses and the law. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, where we read, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. And the Apostle Paul is, is going back and he's basing that. He's basing his, his current instruction on that Old Testament law. You see, it was not right in numerous ways to yoke two different animals together. Well, one is, for the Jewish people, the one was clean and the other was unclean. 
So the ox was clean, the ass was unclean. That wasn't good to yoke them together. (laughs) But beside that, their nature was so different. Now some of you would know that better than I. But the nature of an ox is much different than the nature of an ass. And so it would not be right to yoke them together. They wouldn't get along very well. It would be cruel to yoke them two together and make them plow a field. (laughs) In a similar way, the Apostle Paul is saying it is wrong for a believer to be joined to an unbeliever. In fact, they are going in two opposite directions, are they not? Their natures are contrary one to the other. How could they get along? How could that benefit the one who is behind the plow? Paul goes on to ask five questions to help us better understand what it means to be unequally yoked. Each of these questions contains a contrast that leads to an obvious answer. And once again, I I notice how the Apostle Paul is, is doing this. He doesn't just say, you shouldn't be yoked together. You shouldn't have fellowship with this. What's your problem? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't go about it like that. But he asks questions. And dear people, by the time he's done asking questions, the people have already condemned themselves because they've answered the questions. And then it's like the bomb is dropped. And, oh, my. <laughs> Paul didn't have to do it. They came to their own conclusion based on his questions. And so he asks these five questions that they all contain a contrast, I say, that leads to an obvious answer. And I want us just to note these. He says, starting at verse 14, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Or what do they have in common? Second, And what communion hath light with darkness? That word communion is the Greek koinonia. It's the church. Koinonia. It speaks of fellowship. It speaks of participation. Partnership. Ownership. He says, what koinonia does light and darkness have with each other? Verse 15 And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Now the word concord comes from the Greek symphonesis. Symphonesis. That is the word that we get our word symphony from. Symphony. An orchestra. You see, beautiful music sounds from an orchestra that is oh. They're they're all being led by the same conductor. They're all playing the same score at the same time. They're in tune. They're playing together. It creates a beautiful symphony. Another word is harmony. That's another rendering of that. Symphonesis. He says, what symphony, what harmony does Christ have with Belial? 
Now, the word Belial is used numerous times in the Old Testament, but this is the only time we find it in the New Testament. I think that's significant. He is showing the, the, the immense importance of this. What harmony does Christ have with Satan, which is another proper rendering there? So that word Belial has to do with worthlessness. It has to do with hopeless ruin, extreme wickedness, destruction, and it has become known as a proper name for Satan. What harmony does Christ and Satan have? Absolutely none. Verse 15, And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Believeth. Pistos. Believeth. He who has faith, the faithful one, pistos, with an infidel, apistos. <laughs> you get it? What does ah mean? It's the opposite. What part does one who is full of faith have to do with one who is faithless? Nothing. It's contrasting. It's opposites. Verse 16 And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And so as you read down through those questions, you look at them, and the answer is obvious to each one. Nothing. No. There's no no similarity. There's no harmony. There's no fellowship. They have nothing to do with each other. It's obvious. You see... God's desires for His people are seen in the words fellowship, communion, concord, part, agreement. Those words express God's desires for His people. And not just as individuals, but as it is in this passage, in this context here, that is His desire for the body of believers for his people to work together in harmony, in unity. And the Apostle Paul goes on to imply that when when our allegiance is divided, when we are not truly separate from the influences and the things of this world, that we are harming the testimony of the body of Jesus Christ. These are God's desires for us, for His people. And yet, this is impossible to experience when we as believers choose to join hands, as it were, with ungodly associations. Now, some examples of ungodly associations. You're probably hoping that I, that I tell you exactly what you can and cannot do, right? I said at the beginning I wasn't going to get into that as much. But the Holy Spirit can help you with that. But, but some, some examples that we often think of when we think of ungodly associations, ungodly relationships, uh, we think of marriages. We think of that. We think of dating relationships. And that's good. Uh, we think of business partnerships. We think of religious relationships. We think of social or community attachments or uh, associations. But, but, dear people, I want you to consider that. Those are good, and, and we ought to think about those. 
But I want you to get this, that even more than this, perhaps, the unequal yoke is, is about influence and it's about identity. In other words, those are even more of an overarching thing for us to consider. The unequal yoke is about influence and about identity. And so you may look at that list that I just said about marriage or business or religious or social, and you may say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And so you may start thinking about bow hunting tomorrow. (laughs) But it's more than that. Because I'm calling each one of us to ponder this morning what we are allowing into our lives through matter of influence or identity that are slowly but surely severing our relationship from Jesus Christ. What, what connections, what relationships are we indulging in that, that is putting our identity as a believer in question? And so the unequal yoke applies to an environment where we let the world influence or we let the world shape our thinking. Which then doesn't stop with our thinking, you understand that, because that then leads directly into our living, our everyday life. And when that happens, that's running contrary to what Romans 12 verse 2 says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, when we allow the influences of this world, when we, be, when we begin to create an identity with the things of this world, with the associations of this world, we lose our ability to clearly understand truth and to live it out. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, and I, I, I fear that too many people, young people included, we all want to know what God's will is for our life, right? I fear that too many people struggle to understand God's will for their life because they are divided in their allegiances. There's too many things vying for first place. God is truly not Lord. Oh, He's up there somewhere. And then they can't figure out, why can't I see my... Why can't I get through this? Why can't I see this clearly? I'm struggling to find God's will for my life. It has to do what's influencing us, what we are allowing into our lives. But the unequal yoke also confuses our identity. And I ask you, who are you? Who are you? Or maybe I should say, whose are you? Whose are you? See, that that means everything. That should make a difference. Who are you living for? Who is calling the shots in your life? 1 Peter 2.9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so the radical call of this gospel here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is to abstain from all relationships that have a negative or ungodly influence on our lives and leave our identity in question. 
You see, that's convicting. And that's where I simply ask the Holy Spirit to direct us and to speak to us, to speak to you, to speak to me. And in fact, as is often the case, not only for me, but I've heard this among other preachers, that we, we end up at the woodshed many times before we ever stand before you. <laughs> Working on a message is a time of, of much growth for me and a time of, of conviction as well when I understand that there are things that I'm holding on a bit too tightly. Let's move on here. So the Apostle Paul helps us get a better understanding of what he's talking about when he talks, when he, when he gives these questions. He asks these questions. In verse 16, he says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And then he drops the bomb, as it were, when he says, You are the temple of the living God. That's reality. As a believer, you are the temple of the living God. In fact, I understand that this word ye here is is actually in the plural, which other renderings, it is we. He's talking in the context here of the body of believers. We are the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, the church, is where God dwells. This, the church, is, is where, well, what does it say here? As God has said, I will dwell in them. That doesn't mean just a visit. That means to inhabit. And I will walk in them. And I'm not trying to be necessarily funny here, but, but the church of Jesus Christ is the stomping grounds, as it were, of God. Okay? We say, where are you from? Where are your, where's your stomping grounds? Where are you from? Where do you live? Okay? Well, the church is the stomping grounds of God. That's where he inhabits. That's where he lives. That's where he walks. You are the temple of the living God. So, you know, for the Jews, as, as Jews could have been reading this, There was nothing that would appear more abominable to a Jew than an idol in the temple of God. Oh, what disgust that would bring to them. I can't believe this. Get rid of that thing. What a desecration. That's abominable. Oh, there would be extreme rage about that to the Jew. Paul is making it clear here to us today. That the worship of the two is completely incompatible. The two do not go together. There should be a great disgust. When you think of of idols and you think of the temple of God, you should think, oh, there's no way that could ever be. You see, far too many Christians, I believe, are, are quite casual about the things that they allow into their hearts, into their minds, whether it's through their ears, whether it's through their eyes. I say there's far too many Christians that are not discerning enough. And even if they realize that there's a potential danger involved, you know what we all think, but I'm strong enough to handle it. 
I'm strong enough to handle it. But what does God say? God says, in a sense, if you think that you can have ungodliness in your life, and me too, you're dead wrong. God and sin do not dwell together. The living God doesn't dwell in a temple with idols. The two are incompatible. I would just like for us to note several uh, passages that speak about this reality of God living within us. Of our lives, our bodies being the temple of the living God. Turn back to Ezekiel uh, verse chapter 37 and verses 26 through 28. Ezekiel 37 in verse 26. We read, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. When? When my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. Okay, we're not talking here about a physical dwelling. We're not talking here about Solomon's temple. We're not talking about a tabernacle as such. We're talking about God's spirit living within our hearts. That is eternal. That is forever in the souls of men. And he says here, The heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, my people, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. That's a testimony. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verses uh, 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Okay, twice he says, ye are the temple of God. Ye are. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're just thinking here, dear people, about the reality of our body being the temple the dwelling place of God. And the seriousness that that, that that brings with it. Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22. In whom 
all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God or a, a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. That is the reality. I will live in them, I will dwell in them, I will walk in them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, this reality then leads to a requirement, and we find this in verse 17. It leads to a requirement. What doth the Lord require of you? Uh, that verse is, has come to my mind numerous times in the last week uh, because of a song uh, that I've been listening to. It comes from Micah 6, verse 8. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. You see, God has a requirement for his people, and his people have a responsibility to their God. I think in our human nature, we often look at requirements in a negative way. <sighs> I'm required to do this. I'm required to do this. It, is that how it is for you? It, it kind of is for me. I don't look at requirements as, as positive things. They're somewhat of a burden. We don't like to be required to do something. We just like to do it on our own accord, right? But if someone requires it, then we chafe a bit under that. How foolish we are, but it's, it's our human nature. But I want you to understand this morning that this requirement in verse 17 is a positive thing. So God says, come out, be separate. And, and our, our nature says, mm, I don't want to do that. You see, separation is not just a negative act of departure, but instead it is a positive act of dedication to God. You see, the whole thrust, in fact, of this passage is about single-heartedness towards God. It's about doing away with things that would water down your resolve to live wholeheartedly for God. To separate yourselves uh, from, from those influences or other identities that would mislead you, that would get in the way of helping you reach your eternal goal. And so the thrust of this passage, dear people, is a positive thrust. This is not meant to burden you. This is not meant to be for your ill at all. It is all about your good. That's what God has in store for you. And so the phrase, be ye separate, suggests devotion to God for a specific purpose. You see, separating from worldly influences is about so much more than just looking like a good, clean, upright person. No, it's so much more than that. Separating from worldly influences is about pursuing a more intimate relationship with God. You see, when we fail to separate, when we fail to abstain from those things that, that get in our way, that come between us and God, it hinders us from maintaining or even pursuing to a greater level that intimate relationship with God. It, it keeps us from moving forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm saying once again that separating from the world, separating from ungodly influences isn't just about to make me look nice and clean like I've got it all together, but it's about pursuing a greater intimacy in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, God says, if you do that, I will receive you. Here's the requirements. But as a result, I will receive you. And so we're not simply separating ourselves from evil things. Game over. No. But we're separating from that unto God. It is directional. We're moving away from one and on to the other. And I want you to, I want you to remember that. Someone has put it this way. It is not a question of simply trying to empty your heart and life of every worldly desire. What an awful impossibility. It is rather opening your heart wide to all the love of God in Christ and letting that love just sweep through you and exercise its expulsive power till your heart is filled with love. That's beautiful. Letting God's love just sweep through you. That expulsive power that brings you to a greater walk with God. Now, as we think about this, there are two ditches that we tend to fall into. It's hard for us to keep in the middle of the road. We seem to want to go one way or the other way. And here's these two ditches. The one is separation without relationship. Separation without relationship. And the end result of that is a dead religion. It's just simply going through the motions. Oh, it looks okay on the outside. Everything looks pretty. The top buttons are buttoned. He might have his suit coat on. Everything looks in order. They come to church, sit down, everyone smiles. But it's just a facade. There's no relationship with the Heavenly Father behind it. Think of the Pharisees. They were the the church leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the day. You know how Jesus described them. He said, you guys, you look just like whitewashed tombs. You look ever so nice on the outside. But but a tomb, (laughs) a, a tomb. Inside, you're full of dead men's bones. I say separation without relationship equals dead religion. You see, I say that's one of the ditches we tend to find ourselves in because it's so much easier just to clean up the inside. I'm sorry. It's so much easier just to clean up the outside to look good. It's so difficult. It takes so much work. And it takes so much humility and brokenness to really deal with the inside. And we don't like to do that. It's just too hard. And we think we're going to look stupid. And like no one, you fill in the blank. You know what it's like. You know the struggle. And so we just gravitate toward fixing up the outside because that's easier. That's one ditch. The other ditch is having a relationship without any separation. And I say the end result of this is nominal Christianity. We see it all around us today. There's a relationship, is there? I think. There might be. (laughs) I'm not sure. I mean, 
Nominal Christianity. In other words, nominal means it's in name or form only. Professing Christianity. You know, think of the countless people in our neighborhoods, in our nation, in our world today, who are professing Christians. They say they're a Christian. They check the box. I'm a Christian. I identify with the Christian camp. But their witness is unseen. Their testimony is unheard. And their gospel is powerless. They have nothing to show for in the end. Jesus said, His people will be salty and seen. Matthew chapter 5. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light to unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so, God's people are to be salty. God's people are to be seen. Just as we put a candle up on a candlestick. The purpose is to give light to all around, right? Our lives are to be the same. Our testimony, our witness is to be the same. But when there is no separation... We become lost among the masses, as it were. God's people are to be salty and seen, but what makes that truly effective is a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just put it this way. This is the middle of the road. That's what we're all striving for, right? That's God's desire for us. And that is separation that is coupled with an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ not only brings God great glory, but it also creates a powerful platform for for presenting a faith that works to a watching world. Let me just say that again. Separation that is coupled with relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, not only brings great glory to God, but it creates a powerful platform that uh, presents a faith that works to a watching world. Let's move on yet, and that is uh, the result. In verse 18, I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I will be a father. Notice, God doesn't say, I am your father. (laughs) No, he doesn't say that. It's it's not that kind of a thrust here at all. He doesn't say, I am your father, as it's, it's a matter of position. I'm your father, you're the children. No. He says, I will be a father unto you. Dear people, that's completely different. That's about his heart of love. You see, you can be a father and yet not be a daddy. You understand what I'm saying? You can have that position and yet not be a daddy that loves the children, that spends time with the children, that cares for the children, that provides for the children, that rolls on the floor with the children, that your heart is wrapped up in the children. You see, God says, come out from among them, be ye separate, and I'll receive you and I will be a father to you. It's beautiful. 
I will be a father to you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty. Pantocrator. Pantocrator, that's the Greek word there. And it means all ruling. Sovereign. Omnipotent. Literally, it's the one who has his hand on everything. (laughs) The one who has his hand on everything. That's our God. That's the God that is being referenced here. In fact, this term here, Pantocrator, this is the only time we find it in the New Testament other than in the book of Revelation. I think it shows up in Revelation maybe uh, nine times in speaking of God's omniscience. God being omnipotent, being the great king God. But here we have, I will be a father unto you, you'll be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty, the one who has his hand on everything. You see, it's this God that has offered adoption to us, into his family. You can be my sons and daughters, and I will be unto you as a father. I will love you and care for you. That happens, and we experience that as we are separated unto him. As we live out his word. As we obey his spirit in everyday life. Now, let me just quickly bring this last point here uh, to a close. And that is on responsibility. And of course, you could, uh, we could preach a whole message on this, on verse 1. But let us just note here our responsibility. Because you see, many groups, they'll stop there. Come out from among them, be ye separate, touch not the unclean thing. I'll be a father to you, I'll be my sons and daughters. Whoa, this is great. Home free, you know. And, and, and that's where it ends. And yet, our God is a God that has requirements. And we have a responsibility. And that is here in verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let me just ask us three questions to bring this out. What is our mark? Or in other words, what is our goal? What is our target when it comes to this thing of separation? When it comes to this thing of abstaining from other influences that would water down our resolve for Jesus Christ? It is holiness. It is Christ-likeness. Do this out of reverence for God. You see, in in fact, the number one goal of every genuine believer is holiness. It's Christ-likeness. In fact, holiness is the Christian's calling. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It is the call for the Christian. Holiness. In fact, holiness is that inner desire to be like God. And our God is a God of complete holiness, a God of beautiful purity. The scripture says that uh, he is beautiful light. He is all light. There's no darkness in him at all. And so therefore, this thing of holiness is, is developing a sincere hatred for sin, a sincere hatred for spiritual darkness and walking as a child of light. That's the mark. 
What is the motivation? Well, the motivation is twofold here. One is, it's experiencing the promises that God has given us. In fact, there's seven promises, verses 16, 17, and 18. Seven promises are listed. I will live in you. I will walk in you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will receive you. What else does it say? I'll be a father unto you. You'll be my sons and daughters. On and on. And so our motivation is, one, to experience those promises. We all want that, right? And the other is, once again, reverence for God. Reverence for God. Do all to the glory of God. And then lastly, what is the method? How do we go about doing this? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Isn't that God's job? (laughs) Isn't that what God is supposed to do in us? You mean I have a part to play in this? Someone has put it this way. He who expects to be made pure without any effort of his own will never become pure. And he who ever becomes holy will become so as a result of strenuous efforts to resist the evil of his own heart and become like God. Yeah. Oh, truly, our strength and our power for this battle comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we can't do it on our own. We never can do it on our own. And yet, we have a part to play. The scripture says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? Well, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. The scripture also says, seeing that ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit. Obedience through the word. Living it out. Jesus, speaking of his church, he says he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You see? It's the word of God that cleanses us, that purifies us. And I'll end with these two verses from Jude, verses 20 and 21. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Yes, praise God for his power, his enabling power. And yet each one of us, has a part to play in taking that seriously. Yes, may God help us to be faithful in that. Let's pray. Lord, you've blessed us so richly with another opportunity to worship you together and to dig into your word again, and we praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would just speak to us. Lord, you know uh, the specific needs in each heart here. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would touch those spots and that we would then have the courage and the willingness to feel that nudge and, and to act on it. Uh, Father, we know that it's, it's not easy. and it, it takes humility. It takes brokenness. But, Lord, we want to do that because we know that with it comes a deeper intimacy with the Heavenly Father. With it comes renewed peace and joy and, and more power to live in victory and to walk with you. So, Father, I pray that you would just give us hearts that are, are ordered by your word and that we would make it a guide for our life. We pray in Christ's name, amen.